Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Unyielded, Thriving No Matter What. I'm your host, Bobby Kaler, and I'm so happy that you've joined us. Our mission is to provide stories and resources that will give you inspiration to explore all of the possibilities that your life can be. The possibilities are limitless, and guess what? So are you. It begins with believing. Believing in yourself, believing that the future is yours to write, believing that you can not only write your desired future, but that you have everything that you need to write it, edit it as needed, and fully and wonderfully live it. And you don't have to wait. You can start today. The pen truly is in your hand. I cannot wait to share this week's conversation with you. he was 18 and he faced a cancer diagnosis. But it wasn't the cancer that changed his life. It was the generosity of the strangers around him that left such a lasting impact. Now he shares that story and how we can put generosity to work for us. His name is Bob DePasquale, and here's his story. Bob, welcome to the show. Bobby, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. As always, let's get started with your story and how that kind of led you to where you are now. Sure. I was born in New York here in the United States and lived there for about three years. And I always tell people that I lived there for three years because I'm a New Yorker uh, by birth, but I'm really a Floridian. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> Much different down here in South Florida than it is in New York. Although they do say there's a lot of people from the Northeast down here where I live and, and there are, but uh, my parents moved down to South Florida. They chased my grandparents down here. You know, sometimes nice. I feel like grandparents, <laughs> they chased their grandkids. Well, we kind of did it backwards in my family. Love that. And I love it. Uh, I live just west of Fort Lauderdale and and I've lived here most of my life other than those first three years in college. And I just, I really appreciate the warm weather. I'm the type of person that I grew up playing sports in the summer down here. So no complaints about humidity and heat, but I had an opportunity to go back up to college back to New York for college at Hofstra University, which is in New York. And you asked about my story, and this is a critical point of my story. So I kind of just fast forwarded from three to 18. Nothing wrong with those years between <laughs> yeah. three and 18, but they were great that, you know, I had a loving family. I, we were talking offline here before the interview and, and I'm an only child. I had to work to find my friends in the neighborhood, but I, you know, I, I had a great upbringing. I, I loved my life up to that point. And so I went off to college and I don't know about you, Bobby, but when I was 18, I felt like I was invincible. I didn't think oh, yeah. I didn't think anything could take me down. And I was going off to college. I was going to be getting, hopefully getting a degree. I was going to be playing sports and who knows where life was going to take me, but it was, it was pretty cool. And I went up a couple, almost a month early uh, for training camp because I was going to be playing football. And during training camp, you know, you're a freshman, you're trying to prove yourself to the coaching staff, right? You, you'll do just about anything to stay on the field. And I had what I thought was a groin injury. And I would be doing these rehab exercises in the training room. Now, a college wow. training room is much different than a high school training room. It's right. 5 30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and there's just 100 plus people in there running around. It's commotion, there's noise, music, whatever, people doing stuff. And the rehab exercise that they had me doing, I was sitting on a, a stool with three wheels, and I would shimmy across, like push myself across the entire training room. 
and there's so much commotion going on. I'm dodging people. Turns out, I think they wanted that to be part of the exercise. And about a week went by and our head trainer, I really, I owe him a lot now, but just looking back, I, I don't know if I respected him, didn't respect him very much, but he was this little guy and he would stand on this box in the middle of the training room to try to get people's attention and no one's ever listening. It's loud. But for right. some reason, one day, I don't understand, but it got so quiet. I don't know if it really did or that's just what went through my head at the time, but he called me out. He's like, Bobby, you have to get back on the field. You know, you quit being a weakling in so many words, wow. however he said it. And I'm like, wow, the head train, you know, the little trainer guy is calling me out like this totally disrespectful. What am I going to do with myself? And I ended up having a more serious, like formal meeting with him and saying, listen, Rick, uh, something's not right. Like this is just a little groin pull, which by the way, if you've ever pulled a groin, if anyone out there. <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> Right. You don't realize how much you use that muscle getting up, standing, sitting down, whatever. Uh, but I was like, listen, Rick, it's not getting any better. Like something's wrong here. So yeah. he ended up sending to me some doctors and I had a series of tests. You know, I'm 18 years old, driving around New York's Long Island, trying to get these MRIs, X-rays, ultrasounds, you name it, whatever, CAT scan. And I had this meeting. Now, my parents were supposed to come up for my first game. So they were excited. Now, we knew yeah. at this point I wasn't going to be playing in the game. But they were had already booked the trip and they're going to come up. It's a Thursday. I had an appointment at the doctor. Most of these appointments took hours long because I'd go in, I'd get prepped, I'd take the test. You know, all these different things would happen. And I expected to be in there a couple hours like normal. And my parents were flying up. Well, they were going to call me no matter what when, when they landed in New York. And so I got out, I, I went into my appointment. And like I said, I expected to be a couple hours. I registered, I sat in the waiting room for maybe a couple of minutes. They, they brought me back into the doctor's office and he sat me down and said, Bobby, you have cancer. Oh my God. Just like that. Just like that. That's it. Like you have cancer. And I'm like, what? I got my reaction. I can only imagine, yeah. can only imagine what, what he was thinking or what my face looked like when he said this. And he said, you probably have a lot of questions. And, but we're going to come up with a, a treatment course here, but I just, I needed to tell you that. And uh, we'll be in touch soon. I don't even know what I said at that point. I just walked out of there like flabbergasted. Whoa. I come out of the building and the moment, I mean, it was like clockwork. The moment I walked out of the building, my phone rang. Now this is the early stages of cell phones. And it was my mom. And I don't think she expected me to even answer the phone, but she was like, oh, hey, how'd the appointment go? Oh, and I was God. Like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> um, so I had to tell her, obviously. Yeah. And they're in a car on the way to my uncle's house. And remember, my family's still from New York. So they were going to be staying at my uncle's. And I could hear my dad on the other side. He wasn't on the phone, but he was in the, you know, in the, the seat with her there. And he's like, Susan, Susan, my mom's thing, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Like they could tell, he could tell something was wrong. It's like the air just yeah. was let out of the car. So we got back to my, we, I met them. I got in the car, drove to my uncle's. We got back to his house wow. there and uh, we're looking at each other. And we shed a few tears, said a few prayers, and we're just kind of in shock. Yeah. And so that was a Thursday. A couple of days, fast forward a couple of days, and it's Saturday morning. And my oncologist had already told me, like, that I had spoken with the oncologist on Friday, and he's like, listen, we don't know what the treatment plan is, but don't drop your classes. You know, you're starting class on Monday. You got to live a normal life. And so I was just kind of thinking, like, what am I going to do with myself? And my my uncle's best friend comes over the house, just comes by the house. Now we've never met him before because, you know, we were living in South Florida and he's go, he goes directly to my parents and hands him, hands my parents his keys 
and says, Bob and Susan, I can only imagine what's going on with your son right now. Take my car for as long as you need it. I know you got plenty of doctor's appointments, places to drive over the next couple of weeks, but you can have my car. Wow. And they were like, what? And it wow. was just amazing. This amazing act of generosity that I we couldn't expect. And he left. 15 minutes went by. And that was it. And he was gone. Total stranger to you and your parents. Complete stranger to us. Said, Oh my God. Said goodbye to my uncle and it's gone. He's there for maybe 15 minutes. We're like, what? That's crazy. He's just gone. So fast forward a couple more days. Monday is my first college class. Went to it. We took Tim's car and we drove around and did doctor's appointments. Tuesday morning, we I go to my second ever college class. I come out and I'm like, I gotta get something to eat. So I go to the cafeteria and I had like a breakfast burrito or something. And I don't know if you remember those televisions, like a tube television, not like a flat screen like we have <laughs> yeah. these days. There's one of these hanging from a bracket. It's maybe 10 inches, probably not even, maybe eight inches, hanging from a bracket in the corner of the ceiling and the wall in yeah. the cafeteria there. And the news is on. Now, I don't know what news channels to watch. I'm just, whatever's on, I'm watching. And I'm looking at the screen and all of a sudden, a plane hits one of the twin towers. So I call my dad. And I said, hey, dad, you watching? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm in the living room here at your uncle's house. I'm watching the news. And all of a sudden, bam, second plane hits the other tower. And he's like, oh, wow, you better come back to your uncle's house. So I don't even think I finished eating, hopped in the car. And it normally would take me 15 minutes to drive from my school to my uncle's house. It took me nine hours. Nine hours? Nine hours because I'm driving. And in the distance, I see burning twin towers. Yeah, And I'm driving to my uncle's house in New York here. I ran out of gas in, in his neighborhood. and But I listened to the whole thing and kind of watched it in the distance. And I actually I have a master's degree in broadcast journalism now. I will, And I love radio. I will never listen to nine straight hours of AM radio ever again <laughs> in my life. And it's what a an, lot. Yeah. What an incredible day. We pushed my car into my uncle's driveway. Because, you know, I was out of gas and we got yeah. in there and then we kind of had a repeat of the previous Thursday. Like we looked at each other in shock, like what's going on with the world? And we couldn't get a hold of my uncle and my aunt oh, was hysterical. No. She's like, what's going on? Where, where is he? Well, he was in uh, on business in Denver the, the previous night and it must have been maybe seven, eight o'clock and he calls and he's like, hey guys, I'm okay. I'm alive. I, I know what happened. Uh, I was supposed to be flying out, but they canceled my flight as soon as they figured out what was going on there in New York. And I'm going to try to catch the flight tomorrow morning, you know, and, but thankfully I'm okay. So, yeah. but his best friend, Tim was in the tower. No way. perished that day. No. Oh. Yeah. It, and we're, we were just, we were just devastated. We're like, here's this guy who, who did probably the nicest thing we've ever seen for us. And mm-hmm. apparently he worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, an investment bank there in the towers. And that bank actually uh, donated office space to the foundation that my uncle has for cystic fibrosis and disease that my, my cousin actually has. And so just about everyone or everyone for Canada for Shells up early in the office at that time of day, and they were all, they all died. Uh, and the only employee for the foundation that would typically be in that early, uh, her name is Tammy. She actually was uncharacteristically late that morning and was in the subway underneath the tower when it hit. She was able to escape, uh, but the stories that she can tell are just uh, incredible. So, um, oh my goodness! In such a short period of time, life was oh my life God. was flipped upside down. So, yes, I mean, about my story. Yeah, at eighteen, <laughs> though, right? I mean, most of, you typically you go off to college, and it's like you know you're getting used to dorm life. You didn't get a chance at any of that. 
No, not really. Oh my God. So, no. oh, that's terrible about Tim. I mean, yeah, it was incredible. Uh, he was, and then I've heard more about him since then, obviously. And yeah. you know, this, he was such a generous guy. And uh, I actually had the opportunity to speak with his kids who were just babies at the time. One of my, both of my cousins now, my uncle's kids are, are married, but one of their weddings, the Tim's kids were older at that point. I mean, this is, you know, 15 years later, maybe almost 20 years later. And uh, at that point, when, I, when we're at the wedding, I had a chance to speak with them a little bit more closely. And it was kind of almost an awkward thing. We're in the middle of a wedding, but we're having this heart to heart conversation about their dad. But it was yeah. just amazing. It was, yeah, he, he was he was a great guy. Okay, so now I've got a lot of questions. Um, but I bet the first one though, what what happened like with the cancer treatment? I mean, you're cancer free now, right? I mean, it was, yes, I am. I am. Wow. Um, so I have a really funny story. Maybe it's for another show. It's a it's a long story too. Uh, but for me to go through initial testing and treatments and everything during that post 9-11 time in New oh. York was just a disaster. Yeah. We couldn't get anywhere in the city and even the island. I mean, places were closed, getting appointments. It was just, it was ridiculous, to be honest with you. Right. Then I had to have surgery. It ended up being testicular cancer, Man. you know, as you might've been able to tell by the groin injury. And it, it kind of, it spread up into my abdomen. So it was extremely aggressive form of cancer. My oncologist said, he said, you know, it, it wouldn't have been very long. You probably wouldn't have been with us anymore. No. But he was really confident that it was very curable. He said it's 99% curable, but ridiculously aggressive. So we got to yeah. get moving. So we really had to jump through some hoops. Thankfully, we had Tim's car and some connections. And my uncle's daughter, her best friend at the time, and she was, I don't know, maybe second grade or something. Her best friend at the time was her dad was an oncologist. And wow. so he was super generous with his time ended up uh, treating me. He didn't have any room in his clinic. They basically put me in a side room. It's a crazy, crazy story of generosity. And that's why generosity in, in the world and my life is so important to me at this point. But um, yeah. yeah, so I ended up getting treated and it took me, I had 20 rounds of chemotherapy uh, over very, very aggressive uh, treatment plan over a three or four month period. So that would started at the end of September there. And then by the end of the year, um, I had a scan to see how it was going. Uh, and it was clear. So wow. praise the Lord. Like it was a celeb celebratory type of thing. And I was still up in New York. Yeah. I never went home. And then, so none of my family, like other than my parents, but none of my family and friends from back in Florida had seen me. So I went home and I had this amazing homecoming. And so it took me four months or so to recover physically from yeah. all that. Then another month or so mentally, right? Cause it just, yeah. it was such a blur. Right? I mean, I said I was yeah. this invincible 18 year old. But the real healing process, the emotional part of it took me about two years. Yeah. Really, really deep thought and things, things that had to happen. Yeah. I mean, because that kind of two tragedies, right, mm -hmm. in the space of a couple of days. I mean, and I can't even imagine what it was like trying to get medical treatment during that time because every all the everyone was so inundated. So it, it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Wow. But that explains my second question, kind of answers it why generosity is so important to you. It really is about that. And so there's, there's two things I like to point out when I have a question kind of in this line. One is, it's not that people gave me something that they shouldn't have, or it was something out of the ordinary, right? I mean, Tim, he had a car. It wasn't like he didn't have a car. And Dr. Arena, uh, my doctor, he treated people with cancer all the time. 
you know, and there were other, there's, I have a bunch of other people in my life at that point that did some really, really generous things that I consider them my lifesavers, all of them from Rick, my trainer, Dr. Arena to Tim, to my wife, who I didn't know at the time. That's another crazy story. All these people were doing, did things for me that I had no idea they didn't have to do. And their, their generosity was somewhat radical. And I talk about radical generosity a lot as well, because I think most humans are wired to be pretty generous people. Like we'll be giving if there's someone in, really in need that you can see, it's almost obvious to help them. And not that you shouldn't do that. I think we should be generous people, but there's certain people in my life that have displayed what, what I would call radical generosity, generosity that the average person probably wouldn't think is something logical to do, like give them your car, right? Something yeah. like that, or open up your your chemotherapy clinic and basically put somebody in a closet and figure out a way to treat them during a 9-11, you know, disaster. Like it just, all these things that happened. And so, yes, generosity is extremely important. So that's number one. Like people, these, they had things available to them that they had resources that they could give. And I know that in my life, even before that, but especially since then, I've identified plenty of resources, whether it's time or money or influence or knowledge, those things that we have to be generous. And then the other point is that I think is really important why generosity is important to me is because I truly believe that everyone has some sort of gift or skill that Mm. they've been given to make the world a better place. And that doesn't mean they have to change the entire world. doesn't mean they're going to solve world hunger, but it might be something as simple as a smile or just a way to connect with people on a local level. And so one of the greatest quotes that I ever heard and from a a man, I guess he was almost a kid at the time. He was actually heard it at a concert. A guy by the name of Andrew Witt had a band, and he let off one of his songs by saying, you may not change the world, but you may change the world for one. And that just stuck with me. And so now I believe that a big part of that process of changing someone's world is being simply generous. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And it's a great point, you know, that they had resources to give. So what happens if someone, let's say, doesn't have resources to give? What would you say then? Well, my challenge or my argument would be that there's some sort of resource that everyone has to give. Yeah. Uh, but I but I do understand the question and I've been there myself. I, I've definitely been times where I felt like, man, I wish I could help this person and I don't feel capable of doing it, whether they need money or they need help uh, building something or making a connection, whatever it might be. I know the feeling to feel helpless or to be not of very much help and that happens. And so one way to do that for me or, or to help in those type of situations, I've, I really try, I've really tried to be intentional since my whole experience about 20 years ago, but even more so probably in the last five or 10 years of my life, I've really tried to be aware of the people around me, especially with digital technology these days. Our networks have grown by so much. We yeah. really have enough. Most of us have an opportunity to meet and know and understand enough people so that we can make the right connections. So I know if there's someone in need, I know... I have a pretty good chance that I can at least get, point them in the right direction. That's uh, right. So for me, that's really, really important. But even beyond that, that's more of a practical tip, right? So yeah, just be aware, note, like LinkedIn is a tremendous tool these days, right? I mean, there's you can find out so much information about people and what they can help with. So I try to be a good connector in a practical way. But in a more introspective way, I suggest in, in uh, a small portion of the work that we do at my firm that my business partner and I founded, it's helping people identify what's most important to them. And I feel, and I strongly believe that if we know what's most important to us, that will also help us figure out 
how we can be of assistance to other people and not, so it's not just about us. Like knowing what's important for me is a benefit, not just for me. Yeah. And I think that if we don't know what's important to ourselves, we, it's almost like we can miss what's important to others because we haven't really taken the time to think about it. Yeah. That train of thought. I mean, you know, there's a lot of divisive things that that go on in the world that probably have since the beginning of time. Um, But maybe they're more magnified right now in the world. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's been the pandemic or just media coverage or social media, like we just talked about being so available. So there is a lot of, I think there's some superficial thoughts out there that humans are not a lot alike. And while I believe that we should embrace our differences, I think that's what makes us beautiful. I think that's cool. It's interesting. How boring would the world be if we were all the same person? (laughs) If everyone was named Bobby, not just me, you and our dads. So it would be a pretty boring world, but that's certainly not the case. So we are different, but I think we're built. You know, we had our minds are designed to think the same way and and use the same trains of thought to survive, really, uh, Mm -hmm. but also to support each other. And I think if we can understand how we feel joy and how uh, Mm. we feel accomplished and worthy of good, great things in the world, I think that will also help us understand how other people feel that way as well. And that's, it it is key, right? So if we can understand ourselves and those trains of thought, I think we have a much better chance of understanding those around us. Yeah. I love that. And it reminds me of something I learned when I was getting certified in emotional intelligence, Mm because the question often comes up like, well, what happens if someone just doesn't have empathy towards others? I mean, that's a common thing. And one of the best ways to learn empathy is to get in touch with what you're feeling, because Mm -hmm. by doing that, it opens you up so that you can learn more about others. The other thing you said earlier, too, that I just really agree with, sometimes it can be as simple as a smile or a kind word or I used to travel a lot for work. Like I was on a plane so many times a month. It was unbelievable. And I'd always take, I'd usually take the earliest flights in the morning that I could because it was, you know, the less chance of delay. And I always, when I'd board the plane, you know, the flight attendants are standing there. And I have to think that's got to be one of the toughest jobs in the world. I mean, just think about all the complaints they get all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't happy. So every time I'd get on the plane, I'd always make a point of making eye contact and just saying good morning. And whenever possible, like if they had a cute necklace or earrings or a cool tie, whatever comment. And it was amazing to me because I always thought, is that kind of cheesy? But it was amazing to me how warm their smiles back would be. Like, wow, mm-hmm. thank you for noticing me. So just something that simple, I think is, you know, it can make a difference. Yeah, that's powerful. I think a lot of people probably underestimate the value of that for sure. Yeah. And I can think of a few examples in my life of people that have just turned my day around just by being kind. And so just doing little things and making someone's life better really does change the world, I think, because it's contagious, if you will. The dopamine and oxytocin, you want to do some research. And now I'm not much of a scientific type, but that's some fascinating research on how those hormones and those things in our lives work. I truly believe that's changing the world because if I'm making one other person just feel a little bit more confident about themselves, like the the flight attendant. Think about it. You told the flight attendant, hey, thank you so much for the work that you're doing for us. Or that's a gorgeous necklace that you're wearing. You know, that's that's really nice. Think about how much better they feel. Maybe they are a little bit better at de-escalating a a situation on the plane tomorrow or later that day, or they're a little bit kinder to a guest. Uh, to to one of the people flying, and then that person is kinder to their friend, and you know it just it, it the ripple effects are amazing. So I think we can absolutely change the world, and it starts with starts within 
even starts in the home. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about this, Bob, but like when you do something as simple as letting someone in in traffic or opening the door for someone or, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind word, how do you feel about yourself when you do that? Oh, you you feel great. And I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a lady by the name of Wendy Steele. I feel like I've been pumping her up and talking about her for a couple, the past couple months, but um, I had a chance to talk with her. She's She founded an organization called Impact 100 Global. It brings communities of women together in different cities across the world to, to be generous and philanthropic, not only with nice. their money, but also with their time. And anyone who wants to check it out, it's Impact 100. You can search for it. Uh, it's a really, really cool organization. But she has a TED Talk that's probably 10 or 15 years old, you know, somewhere in that range. And she talks about oxytocin, one of those, the hormones that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. It's fascinating because most of us, like you just talked about, Bobby, like how good it feels to be generous and kind to someone, right? So you get a hit of oxytocin, but from a a good feeling bonding with other people perspective, the giver experiences a release of oxytocin. The person who receives something, I think most of us can fundamentally understand that they also receive that hit of oxytocin. But what Wendy makes amazingly clear in her TED Talk and really dove into it with me is how their third party, someone who experiences a giving generous act that's not even a part of it, just sees it, also receives oxytocin. So talk about changing the world, not just for the person that you picked up their something that they dropped or opened a door for, the person that saw you actually do it. I love that part of it. Exactly. You know, I think we so need more of that. There's so much bad news. And, and I'm not saying that because I'm like you, I'm a very optimistic person. I'm a very positive person. I don't, I don't hide my head in the sand. I know that there are, there's plenty of bad news, but yep. man, we don't have to live in that space. So tell me a little bit about your book. Sure. So I had all this pent up thought and ideas about stresses around financial topics and how People and families are really, really pressed when it comes to their finances. Yeah. Even those that you might think have plenty of money. It's really not about the amount, but it's more about the relationship with money. And so um, I had the opportunity to write a book and I actually sent a, an email to a couple of publishers, not expecting to hear anything back. And but they both they both responded. One of them in particular uh, had said to me, hey, so Bob, sounds like a great idea. How far along are you in your manuscript? And I wrote back, what's a manuscript? <laughs> I didn't even know what that was, to be honest with you. I didn't remember from, you know, whenever I learned that in school. So I dove right in and I just dumped my thoughts about social media, technology, and the ad space of today and how it's causing us stress on our finances. When in theory, you would think technology is supposed to make things simpler, but it's actually making it more complicated, to be honest with you. Wow. So how does that, I'm kind of, I'm intrigued. How does it create more stress? Well, I mean, the main reason is is uncertainty in many people's lives, whether you know it or not, human beings are very planned beings. (laughs) You might not consider yourself the schedule type or the person who has a really tight schedule, but we prefer to know what's happening. So for example, when I, the scariest part of my cancer situation that we talked about was when we didn't know what we were going to do. That's right. Once we figured out what we were going to do, not that I was happy, but I was in a much better place because I knew the, the course of action and we knew what it was. And the same thing goes for money. We're afraid of unexpected expenses. We have 17 different types of insurance because we're afraid of catastrophe. We would rather not look at our bank account than balance our checkbook, right? Because we would just prefer not to know because it's too much uncertainty. So 
there's a lot of stress about that. And then the other point of stress that I found and a big part, portion of what the book uh, talks about is that we are, we've been given thousands of million messages, over 2,100, did some research, there's over 2,100 times per day that we interact with some kind of device or swiping, clicking, oh looking, my God. experiencing. And the vast majority of those messages tell us that we don't have enough. That's right. Uh, we're not adequate. In and some, always, somehow, some way. Exactly. It always And it always comes back to money, whether you need to buy a specific product or you need to buy a course or you would look better in this or this will help you feel better, whatever it might be. And some of them, there's a lot of products out there that are very innovative and they're good products. So it's that this is not a criticism of any, if you're a business no. owner, listen, I'm a business owner, but we use social <laughs> media to advertise what we do. It's not that what we do or any of those products or services are not adequate. There are some that maybe are doing business in the wrong way, but there's plenty. There's millions that are doing well. The problem is all the platforms that we interact with now are designed to tell us differently or to tell us that we're not adequate and we need more. And that's the issue. And that creates the stress because then we feel whether we know it or not, and there's a whole bunch of research in the book. And that was probably the hardest part about writing the book. It wasn't actually writing it. It was researching and figuring out why this stuff happens. And the research shows that there's numerous sources, pain points and stresses in everyone's life that are either magnified or potentially not even true at all because they've the messages that they're receiving are almost to a point that they're subconscious because they hear them so much. You have no choice but to believe that you need more of whatever it is. And the kicker is that the technology of today is way different than it was 25, even 15 years ago. The ads used to be, it it was strictly determined by whichever company could afford the biggest check. And and they were uh, like a Super Bowl ad was a million dollars, you know, however many years ago. I remember that. A long time ago. The way they determine who saw, who gets the Super Bowl ad is whoever paid the most for the commercial. And it works a little bit different now. Now, these platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever platform you're on, uh, YouTube, Google, we all use them all the time. They are, their algorithms are designed to feed you what you've already told them that you're either concerned about or really, really interested in. Mm-hmm. And so you get retargeted consistently. So now there's an even stronger propensity uh, for you to feel stressed because you've already identified that there's some level of stress on that related to that product. And that's why if you search for, I don't know, hiking boots, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. you know, you search one time and man, you're inundated with, you know, this link for hiking boots that, I mean, it is. I told one one of the stories I told in the book is that a friend of mine works in social media advertising, has purchased hundreds of millions of dollars of ads for different companies, so yeah. tremendous amount of experience in the industry. And I was going to be interviewing him strictly for the book I knew I wanted to anyway, because he was going to provide knowledge. But we were talking one day (laughs) and he told me how he had just left New Jersey to move down to Florida, which I thought was cool. It's like, hey, you know, maybe we can hang out. I haven't seen you in a while. And he was telling me how he just was in his apartment and he's like, I got to go. It's getting late. I got to cook dinner. And I said to him, I was like, cook dinner? Like your first night in a new apartment is unfurnished. Why are you cooking? Why don't you just call Uber Eats or go out to grab something to eat? And he's like, well, I have this Brava oven and shout out to Brava because their retargeting ads are incredibly powerful because he sent me a link. I must've looked at it for 30 seconds, not even maybe 15 seconds. And he's like, I've got to run. I was like, Hey man, great to talk to you. We'll we'll catch up tomorrow or, you know, later. And I went straight to bed. I didn't even do anything else. And I woke up the next morning and that oven 
was chasing me around the internet the rest of the day. Oh it knew. God. It knew I looked at it. <laughs> I love that image of the oven chasing you around. Yeah. You will buy me. You will buy me. Yeah, but that's like how we, it is anymore. Yeah. yeah. Exactly oh how my it is. goodness. We're told not only that we need more of something, but it's like confirming our own thoughts already. That's what the ads yeah. are. It's more than just, hey, check out my product. It's, oh, wow, I heard you saying that you're struggling with this. Well, we can help you. That's right. That's yeah. right. And, and, and it goes to a little bit of the judging our circumstances so that we couldn't mm-hmm. possibly be happy until we get the new oven or whatever that might be. It's absolutely true. And I always advise people, I tell them, so we work with we work with generous families to help them manage wealth and create philanthropic plans for impact. There's a, lo- a lot of people really, really are generous people. It's not that people don't want to give of their time, their talents, and their treasures. But what happens is, is they are made to believe that they are incapable or not in a good situation uh, to be generous. And those messages are just really, really challenging. So the work that I yeah. do now is really fulfilling because I'm not making people generous. I mean, the other day, someone said to me, he's like, oh, well, how do you turn someone from an entrepreneur into a philanthropist? And I'm like, I have no clue because I don't think you can do that. That's not what I do. <laughs> I, simply, I love that answer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just, there's no way that you don't turn, like, you can't no. change someone like that. But what you can do is help them be more confident with what it is that they have. And Ooh. it's unfortunate, but a lot of the forces out there are giving us the opposite message that we, you shouldn't be as confident in yourself or the resources that you have. You need more. That's right. That's a great point. Yeah, there's a yeah. another lady. Ari Campbell, her quote is essentially, don't ask yourself if you can afford to or or if you're capable of supporting something, right? Ask yourself, what good can you do with what you have? So I'm butchering that completely. It's much slicker. But the explanation is essentially this, as opposed to sitting back and letting forces tell you what you need or don't need or, or even how, you know, being solicited to use what you have to help other people, you should be more proactive with it. And and you'd be surprised on how effective it is for the actual generosity, but also for your own mindset, just in life, your own fulfillment, when you're more proactive about what it is that you're trying to do. So identify things that are really, really important to you, and then yeah. go research and chase after them. You'd be surprised how e- how much easier it is to just to be a giving, generous person. That makes a lot of sense. And real quickly too, Bob, a minute ago, you said something about impact projects. Yes. What is an impact so, project? That's a great one. So an impact project, that's kind of my term okay. for someone living out their generosity. And in the work that we do, people will ask us, how can I make a difference with what I have? And sometimes I think people believe, maybe it's because some of the technical knowledge or conversations that we get into about foundations and charitable remainder trusts and donor advised funds and all those technical things, mostly in the financial and estate planning world that can get really confusing and intimidating. Going back to the unknown, I started using, instead of saying your foundation or, or your charity uh, or your philanthropic giving or you know your, the money, whatever it is, instead of using those terms, I started using the word impact project or the phrase impact project because I think we all have small little impact projects or big impact projects that we do all the time. So for example, I know someone, a good friend of mine who 
goes to visit shut-in people just out of the goodness of her heart. Uh, she wow. retired and someone was like, well, you know, what are you going to do in retirement? And she's like, well, you know, I don't have a lot of resources. I can't, I'm not going to start a, you know, I don't have a hundred million dollars. You know, I don't really have a lot, but what I can do is I can go talk to people. Uh, so she got a list of all these people that are shut in their home and her impact project is not formal. There's no website. There's no donations. It's just her and occasionally a friend of hers. She takes someone with her and they drive around town once a week and they go visit the people who are bedridden or or can't leave their home. And it's just an amazing wow. thing. And so that's an impact project. Another example could be uh, simply cleaning some stuff up around a building or uh, you know doing a beach cleanup day. There's all kinds of little things. So that's what an impact project is. It's something that's making a positive impact in the world that you did. And it doesn't have to be huge. I love that. I love that idea. And you're right. If you start talking about foundations or whatever, it's like, oh, that's just, it's too big. So Bob, tell us, how can people learn more about the work that you're doing and your book and all that kind of good stuff? Sure. Anything uh, about myself and my social links, I love to interact with people on social media, try to use it for a force uh, for good and positivity in the world. Uh, You can go to bobdepasquale.com. So book and all of that information is right there, my blog and, and podcast that we do. And then if you're interested in what we do at the business, you can just go to initiateimpact.com. Nice. That's perfect. And I'll put those in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your story. And I really love the notion of the impact projects. That's just a great phrase. I love that. (laughs) Good. I'm glad you like it. It's it's hopefully catching on. The other word that I use all the time, uh, and I think my close friends and family over the past couple of years have kind of giggled at it, but I use the term impact maker all the time. And if you try to type it in on your computer, the spell check will not allow it. But I've made it into a word in my on my computers. <laughs> I always say impact makers, just live out your generosity. I love that. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Bobby, thank you so much. I, I wish you the best. I hope you had a lot of takeaways from that interview. Here are three of my favorites. Number one, as a listener, are you being hospitable? I loved that framing. Are we really inviting and welcoming the other person to share their story? Number two, stop rushing past our experiences and the opportunity to reflect on them. That's where we find the gold nuggets, but only if we take the time to mine them. And finally, number three, challenge the belief that we have to be invincible. During my time at Aslan, everyone used to joke that I was superwoman and that I wore a cape. And I was proud of that. And I suppose that I still am to some extent. However, the problem is that wearing a cape is lonely and it's exhausting. Maybe it's time that we put down our capes. Those were just the three that stood out to me. I hope that you gleaned some insights that will help you thrive in new ways. Thanks for tuning in and for listening. And by the way, if you haven't done so already, maybe you'd leave us a review as that really helps more people find us. I hope that you have a great week and that you thrive no matter what.